Hello and welcome back to Chiron, conversations about the past to help us make sense of the present. In this podcast, we investigate ideas that have been established throughout history in literature, theology, and philosophy in the belief that our current world has been shaped by some of these big ideas of the past. I guess the question is, why should we care? Why is it worth trying to understand these ideas? Well, the answer is that because while we might not know it, these ideas have also shaped us. Because they've shaped the world that we live in, and we are shaped by the world we live in, therefore these ideas have shaped and actually continue to shape us. So we may very well have a bunch of assumptions and beliefs that have formed our approach to the world and actually formed us ourselves. And these are assumptions that we might not actually agree with, if only we knew what they were. So think of this podcast as a little bit like an archaeological dig, but rather than digging in the dirt to find ancient relics and shards of pottery, we're digging around into the past to find out why we think the way we think, why we believe the kinds of things that we believe. And it's one of those ways that we're tempted to think that we are exploring at the moment. This is episode three in a series called Thou Shalt Be Gods, in which we investigate the foundations to a pernicious old lie, humanity's desire to be God. Today we're talking again about John Milton's rendering of the figure of Satan in his epic poem Paradise Lost, written in the 17th century. And remember, Satan is the progenitor of what we're calling this old lie, the satanic impulse. Now, as we get started, I wonder if you've ever thrown around the word pandemonium before. Maybe, like me, you've heard a noise from your kid's bedroom and gone in to see mess everywhere and the kids are screaming at each other and in order to uh, attempt to get some sort of order in the place, you've interjected by screaming even louder at them, at which point they've turned around and screamed even louder back at you. A scene you may very well describe to your friends later on as complete pandemonium. Well, before you do, maybe we should do an etymology check on that word, because it turns out that our guy John Milton, the author of Paradise Lost, actually made the word up when he was writing the poem. It comes from two root words. We've got pan, which means all or every, and demon, which means, well, demon. The eum at the end is a suffix denoting a place or an office, And thus, pandemonium literally means all demons' place. So maybe give that a uh, cheeky consideration next time before you describe your kid's bedroom like that. Or then again, maybe knowing the demonic inference, you're more than happy to double down on that usage. Either way, this is where we left Satan last time at the end of the last episode, about to enter the newly created pandemonium, the capital the capital city of hell. Satan, having reveled in his so-called freedom and uttering those famous lines, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, he calls all the demons to assemble in the halls of pandemonium for a big infernal council. The point of this council is to decide the best course of action. And what follows is a fairly ordered affair where multiple demons stand up and kind of take their turn to represent their opinion, represent 
kind of the perspective that they hold based upon their office, the kinds of things that they're known for. So you've got demons like Mammon and Beelzebub, who are all getting up and presenting their opinion. Some of them are opting to ignore God completely and make the most of it where they are, and others are deciding to opt or they are proposing an all-out war, actually an all-out war with God in the hope of being annihilated, because annihilation would be better, according to this demon than living in the pain and torment of hell. But none of these ideas really take off until they decide upon a plan, which is put forward by Beelzebub, to try to infiltrate Earth in order to seduce humanity to the demon's side. Everyone agrees it's a fantastic idea, but upon asking for volunteers, all sat mute, till finally Satan stood and took the mantle upon himself. This is one of the reasons why Satan comes across and can be read as such a heroic, courageous character. So, off he sets, out looking for a way to get out of hell and to get to earth, and soon he comes to the gates of hell. And it's here that we're going to stop and spend some time for a while. Because here at the gates of hell, Milton illustrates such a vivid image, rich in depth and symbolism, that points to the nature of the satanic impulse. And listen, before we get stuck into this, I should probably give a proper warning here because this little episode that I'm about to read and that we're about to talk about is actually pretty horrific stuff. Not for the faint of heart, not for the queasy. So Satan approaches a set of towering gates. And at this point, I'm going to enter into the poem. I want to read the words themselves. It's a bit of a long scene, so I'll try to cut out some sections that are not relevant to my point. He approaches the gates, and before the gates there sat on either side a formidable shape. The one seemed woman to the waist, and fair, but ended foul in many a scaly fold, voluminous and vast, a serpent armed with mortal sting. About her middle round a cry of hellhounds never ceasing barked, with wide Siberian mouths full loud, and rung a hideous peal. Yet when they list would creep, if aught disturbed their noise, into her womb and kennel there, yet there still barked and howled within unseen. The other shape, if shape it might be called, that shape had none distinguishable in member, joint, or limb, or substance might be called, that shadow seemed, for each seemed either, black it stood as night, fierce as ten furies, terrible as hell, and shook a dreadful dart what seemed his head the likeness of a kingly crown had on. Satan was now at hand, and from his seat the monster moving onward came as fast with horrid strides, hell trembled as he strode. So Satan looks at this figure, this figure who has approached him with the dreadful dart, with the kingly crown on his head, and he says to the figure, Whence and what art thou execrable shape? that darest, though grim and terrible, advance thy miscreated front athwart my way to yonder gates. Through them I mean to pass, that be assured, without leave asked of thee. Retire, or taste thy folly, and learn by proof, hell-born, not to contend with spirits of heaven. To whom the goblin, that is this shadowy figure blocking Satan's path, full of wrath, replied, Art thou that traitor angel? 
Art thou he who first broke peace in heaven and faith till then unbroken, and in proud rebellious arms drew after him the third part of heaven's sons conjured against the highest, for which both thou and they, outcast from God, are here condemned to waste eternal days in woe and pain? And reckonest thou thyself with spirits of heaven, hell doomed, and breathest defiance here and scorn where I reign king, and to enrage thee more, thy king and lord? Back to thy punishment, false fugitive, and to thy speed add wings, lest with a whip of scorpions I pursue thy lingering, or with one stroke of this dart strange horror seize thee and pangs unfelt before. So spake the grisly terror, and in shape, so speaking and so threatening, grew tenfold more dreadful and deformed. On the other side, incensed with indignation, Satan stood unterrified and like a comet burned. So frowned the mighty combatants, that hell grew darker at their frown, so matched they stood, for never but once more was either to meet so great a foe. And now great deeds would have been achieved whereof all hell had rung, had not that snaky sorceress that sat fast by the hell gate, and kept the fatal key, risen, and with hideous outcry rushed between. So, you can see the image. Satan is approaching the gates, and meaning to go through them, but he's confronted by this huge, growing, towering figure, kind of all shadowy and skeletal, brandishing a weapon, claiming to be the king of hell and challenging Satan. It's an old-school Mexican standoff of mythic proportion. Until the other figure, a woman whose bottom half is disfigured into a nest of writhing snakes and serpents, enters between them and cries out to Satan. And this is what she says. O father, what intends thy hand against thy only son? What fury, O son, possesses thee to bend that mortal dart against thy father's head? This is like an Empire Strikes Back moment, to hear this woman cry out and claim that both she and the other creature are children of Satan. Because, obviously, Satan doesn't recognise them. So Satan then replies, So strange thy outcry, and thy words so strange thou interposest, that my sudden hand prevented spares to tell thee yet by deeds what it intends, till first I know of thee, what thing thou art, thus double-formed, and why in this infernal vale first met thou callest me father, and that phantasm callest my son. I know thee not, nor ever saw till now sight more detestable than him and thee. To whom thus the portress of Hellgate replied, Hast thou forgot me then? And do I seem now in thine eye so foul, once deemed so fair in heaven? When at the assembly, and in sight of all the seraphim with thee combined in bold conspiracy against heaven's king, all on a sudden miserable pain surprised thee, dim thine eyes and dizzy swum in darkness, while thy head flames thick and fast through forth, till on the left side opening wide, likest to thee in shape and countenance bright, then shining heavenly, a goddess armed out of thy head I sprung. Amazement seized all the host of heaven, Back they recoiled, afraid at first, and called me sin, and for a sign potentious held me. But, familiar grown, I pleased and with attractive graces won the most averse, thee chiefly, who
who full oft thyself in me thy perfect image viewing, becamest enamoured, and such joy thou tookest with me in secret that my womb conceived a growing burden. Meanwhile, war arose, and fields were fought in heaven, wherein remained for what could else to our almighty foe clear victory, to our part loss and rout through all the Empyrean. Down they fell, driven headlong from the pitch of heaven, down into this deep, and in the general fall I also, at which time this powerful key into my hand was given, with charge to keep these gates for ever shut, which none can pass without my opening. Pensive here I sat alone. But long I sat not, till my womb, pregnant by thee and now excessive grown, prodigious motion felt and rueful throes. At last this odious offspring whom thou seest, thine own begotten, breaking violent way, tore through my entrails, that with fear and pain distorted all my nether shape thus grew transformed. But he, my inbred enemy, forth issued, brandishing his fatal dart made to destroy. I fled and cried out, Death! Hell trembled at the hideous name, and sighed from all her caves, and back resounded, Death! I fled, but he pursued, though more, it seems, inflamed with lust than rage. And swifter far me overtook his mother all dismayed, and in embraces forcible and foul, engendering with me of that rape, begot these yelling monsters, that with ceaseless cries surround me, and thou sawest hourly conceived and hourly born, with sorrow infinite to me. For when they list into the womb that bred them, they return, and howl and gnaw at my bowels their repast. Before mine eyes in opposition sits grim death, my son and foe who sets them on. And me, his parent, would full soon devour for want of other prey, but that he knows his end with mine involved, and knows that I should prove a bitter morsel and his bane, whenever that shall be, so fate pronounced. But thou, O father, I forewarn thee, shun his deadly arrow, Neither vainly hope to be invulnerable in those bright arms, though tempered heavenly, for that mortal dint, save he who reigns above, none can resist. Well, what to make of that? It's pretty intense, right? There is obviously some brutal imagery in there. And I know that following it might have been difficult with the late 17th century English, but I really believe that it's most powerful, most dynamic in its true form. Uh, and I hope, maybe, that it might have even convinced you to give it a crack. Paradise Lost is uh, probably, I think it is, the, the greatest uh, English poem written in the English language ever and is absolutely worth spending some time with. But what does it all mean? That's the question we should ask. What does it all mean? We've got Satan here confronting two figures, and you would have caught their names, Sin and Death. And being told by Sin, that he's actually her father, and he's also Death's father, and I guess, in a sense, grandfather. So it's messy stuff, and it's totally immersed in meaning and symbolism that paints with vivid colours the dynamics of the satanic impulse. So let's start by recognising the nature of the relationship between these three. You will have noticed that sin emerges from out of Satan's head. It was when Satan considered his bold conspiracy against heaven's king that sin sprung out 
of the side of Satan's head. Now, symbolically, it's important to recognize uh, that it was a sin committed in his mind. When you think about it, it was his thought of usurping the throne of God that caused sin to be born from his mind. It was thinking. It was uh, considering a possible future and desiring that future. That was the first sin. It was the birth of sin itself. Now, at first in heaven, when sin kind of appeared, everyone was disgusted and recoiled, afraid, away from her. However, after a while, you will have noticed that Satan grew accustomed to her. And this is a really interesting, I think, image of how a really grievous act is more often than not, if our consciences are alive and well, really revolting to us. We can, you know, if, if we do uh, commit a sin, maybe it's a new sin that we've never committed before, you know, immediately the first time around, there can be a lot of shame attached to that. And that shame can be a, a really important, valuable thing. You know, you can kind of recoil from it. You can't believe that you've done it when you, when you think about it. But as time goes on, particularly if you think about it uh, in certain ways, you can become more desensitized to it. You can grow accustomed to it. So the first time a deed is committed, which we know to be harmful or against our nature, the natural response is to recoil from it. But it doesn't take long for us to be desensitized and to grow accustomed. It's a little bit like an analogy that I used to use with students all the time when talking about this sort of stuff. It's a little bit like watching a horror movie, which is a, which is a good analogy. It works really well for students because most of them are really into horror movies. I, never, I can't handle horror movies. They just terrify me. They freak me out, right? And so the sorts of things that I can't handle, probably a lot of 13-year-olds would think are really not a big deal at all. But that's kind of the way that horror movies work. The things that really scared us when we, when we were 10 years old they're likely not very scary to us now. And the more scary movies we watch, the more intense they need to be in order to elicit the same level of terror within us. Because I haven't watched very many, I get scared at you know, what a lot of kids would think are really basic horror movies. But there's 13, 14-year-olds there that have really been immersed in horror movies, and for them, nothing's really scary anymore because they've become desensitized. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that happens with sin and, uh, and Satan in heaven. So it's not long until Satan is no longer disgusted, but actually it's not just that he's kind of become accustomed or desensitized to sin. He rather grows attracted to sin. But this is really important because listen to the words that Milton uses. See, it's not really sin herself to which he's attracted. She says to him when she's telling him the story because he's forgotten it, he doesn't recognize her. So she's telling him the story of what happened. She says, Full oft thyself in me, thy perfect image viewing became enamored. In other words, he saw himself in her. It was the image of himself that he fell in love with, not her at all. He's attracted to himself. This is a really, really important insight into the circular spiral of the satanic impulse, the Ouroboros. I don't know if you've ever, if you know that expression, you've probably seen the image before of an Ouroboros. It's that picture of a serpent eating its own tail. It's kind of a representation of a self-devouring appetite. During the Reformation, Martin Luther 
commenting on the work of St. Augustine, wrote quite a bit about this, and he called it Homo incurvatus in se, man curved in on himself. See, Satan falls in love with himself, and thus he turns in on himself, rather than living a life turned outward to others, to love and to serve others in God, he turns in on himself, focusing intently on himself and himself alone at the cost of everything else. And this is perhaps the best definition of pride, which C.S. Lewis calls the great sin. In his book Mere Christianity, he says, It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And later he says, For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And that common sense is a really interesting point that we'll return to shortly. So, sin is born when Satan, through pride, covets the throne. He then sees his own image in sin, and he took joy with sin in secret. And that image there is one of sexual relations, but it's also an insight into the secret relationship that we have with our pride. In the dark recesses of our minds, curving in on ourselves and fostering the growth of sin. And what is the result of this secret union? When Satan gave in to sin, when he gave himself to sin, or rather we should say when he pursued and took sin for his own, when he identified himself with sin, when he owned his sin, she became pregnant. And the progeny of this union was death. Death is the result of complicity with sin. Death is the byproduct of a self-devouring self-obsession. Not just, of course, the death of the individual, but of course, such an individual brings death to all those around. Such an individual sows destruction and death wherever they go. Now, this character of death in the poem is not content to be born of natural means. Death is not natural. Death is violent and unnatural, and thus the image is of death ripping himself from sin, disfiguring her as he does so, so that now her bottom half becomes a nest of serpents. But what is the nature of death? It is to devour. Sin flees and is pursued, as death has an insatiable hunger, and he constantly hunts his mother down and overwhelms her with his unappeasable lust. It's a brutal image, but this is the complete picture. Satan fathers sin from his own mind and then pursues her, his daughter, but only out of his own self-obsession, the result of which is death, and then death indulges in the same pursuit, always craving, never full. Now, if you are, when you think about it, and when you heard it getting read, somewhat disgusted by this whole thing, that's probably a good thing you probably should be. Milton has not left us guessing about the nature of sin and Satan and death. They're rendered as sickening, gruesome, violent horrors. And they are. And this is the most truthful way to render them. In these three characters, what we can see is actually an inversion of the Christian idea of the Holy Trinity. Rather than that trinity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, which is always giving to each other in abundance of gift, 
They, they, uh, they give themselves to each other out of a never-ending excess of love. Rather than that, we rather see something completely the opposite. We don't see a holy trinity, we see an unholy trinity. Satan, sin, and death, always pursuing, owning, taking, and destroying each other in acts of selfishness. Incestuous destruction rather than unbegotten creation. Such is the nature of sin. Such is the nature of the satanic impulse. So what are we to make of this incredible and incredibly disturbing image? Well, most importantly, it demonstrates to us the impossible bargain of the satanic impulse. It cannot win. And we shouldn't doubt, by the way, that winning is actually the whole point of the impulse. Lewis says that pride is competitive by nature, and thus it is at the heart of the satanic impulse. When you think about it, if there is a God, humanity's desire to be God, even if there's not a God, actually, humanity's desire to be God is competitive by nature. We're not God, we want to be God, we want to be better. It's competitive. So the desire to be God stems from pride. Now, I think there are a great many philosophies around today that wouldn't recognize this fact. And what I mean by that is there are philosophies and religions and uh, kind of uh, not very specific spiritualities, spiritual ways of being and thinking that would probably teach a form of divination to be God or to recognize ourselves as gods or as part of the one universal reality which is God and is us, right? There, there's this kind of New Age spiritualism that believes some or all of what I just said, and I think it would reject the idea that at the heart of this desire sits pride. But the thing about pride is that most often it is at work in us in secret, in the background. Lewis makes this point in his chapter on pride when he says that it's essentially the starting place of all sin. Most, if not all ways that we go wrong in the world, start from a place of pride, but that can be very difficult to recognize. We, we can see other sins, but we don't necessarily realize, or other vices, or other uh, errors of thinking, or ways of working in the world which seem to be dysfunctional and not working well for others and for ourselves. We don't necessarily recognize that pride forms the bedrock of those approaches. But the point is, this is an impossible bargain. Because it is self-devouring, it devours itself. It therefore can never win. The Ouroboros, the serpent eating its tail, can never succeed. There is a self-contradictory nature to it. And I reckon if you've been alive for more than sort of 20, 30 years, you've probably seen this. Maybe you have seen an example of someone in a completely downward, self-destructive spiral. And probably the example that comes immediately to mind, even if you haven't seen it in reality, you've probably seen it depicted on TV, is someone who's absolutely hooked on a really, really destructive drug, for example. But the truth is, these inward curving spirals are actually around us all the time. But most of them are very slow. So slow as to be completely imperceptible. But regardless of this, whether they're slow or fast, even when they're fast and obvious, even when someone's life is really falling apart very quickly, you'd probably also know how it can be basically impossible to reason with an individual who's caught within such a self-devouring spiral. 
See, they get gripped by this vision that they have of a future in which everything that they're yearning for is given to them, is achieved. And for this reason, so intent are they on some future vision that they can't see the present and they can't hear the truth. The examples of this, remember before we talked about uh, pride eating up even the potential, the possibility for common sense? That's really what we're talking about here when people cannot hear the truth, even when it's staring right at them. And the examples of this in the character of Satan are rife. Satan, and in fact all of the demons really, they lie to themselves constantly. For example, in that infernal council in Pandemonium, Beelzebub says at one point, for he, and he's referring here to God, be sure in height or depth, still first and last will reign sole king, and of his kingdom lose no part. The demons know this. They actually say stuff like that all the time. They're always acknowledging the fact, basically, not only can we not win, but we can't even take a tiniest little peep. We can't even have a tiny sense of victory. The demons know it, even in the middle of trying to determine their designs to thwart God's plans. What they do, really, is they, they kind of say it, they acknowledge it, and then they quickly ignore it and forget it. Later on, when Satan is searching for the Garden of Eden, Milton, writing, it's more kind of like the narrator here, says that horror and doubt distract his troubled thoughts, and from the bottom stirs the hell within him, for within him hell he brings. He struggles against the conscience that wakes his despair that slumbered, wakes the bitter memory of what he was, what is, and what must be worse, of worse deeds, worse sufferings must ensue. See, he's setting off to do worse deeds, and he knows that worse sufferings will be the result. Reflecting upon this situation, he says to himself, Me miserable, which way shall I fly? Infinite wrath and infinite despair. Which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell. And in the lowest deep, a lower deep still threatening to devour me opens wide, to which the hell I suffer seems a heaven. Oh, then at last relent. Is there no place left for repentance? None for pardon left? He's, he's really kind of interrogating, grappling with where he's at. And then he even asks himself, is it possible? Is it possible for me to repent? Is it possible for me to be pardoned? But listen to his response to himself. None left but by submission. And that word disdain forbids me. And my dread of shame among the spirits beneath, whom I seduced with other promises and other vaunts than to submit, boasting that I could subdue the omnipotent. Ay me, they little know how dearly I abide that boast so vain, under what torments inwardly I groan, while they adore me on the throne of hell, the lower still I fall only supreme in misery, such joy ambition finds. So farewell hope, and with hope, farewell fear, farewell remorse, all good to me is lost, evil be thou my good. A great line, a famous line that we will return to throughout this series, the complete inversion of what good and evil really mean. You may know, for example, little sneak preview, 
of the title of a book by Nietzsche called Beyond Good and Evil. Now, you'll remember that famous line that we talked about last time, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. As mighty and powerful as those words are, we shouldn't be surprised that Satan's character, he can't create such poetry himself, because it's a fairly poetic statement. Rather, later on in the poem, we actually hear the story of the heavenly war. And there's a moment during the war, this is before Satan's kicked out of heaven, there's a huge war, some incredible battle scenes uh, on the fields of heaven. There's a moment during the war that Abdiel the angel confronts Satan. And this is what he says to him. He's talking to him about Satan's rejection of servitude. He says, To serve the unwise, or him who hath rebelled against his worthier, as thine now serve thee, thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled, yet loudly darest thou ministering abrade. Reign thou in hell thy kingdom, let me serve in heaven, God ever blessed, and his divine behests obey, worthiest to be obeyed. Yet chains in hell, not realms, expect. You see, Satan knew. He had his warning. And he constantly knows. And yet throughout the poem, Satan vacillates between feeling the overwhelming despair of what he knows to be the truth that he cannot win and the sheer power of will by which he puts those things out of his mind, deceives himself, and keeps on with his plight. He heard Abdiel put it in those terms, Reign thou in hell thy kingdom yet expect chains in hell, not realms. But, of course, we have to recognise that Satan does not have chains. Perhaps Satan was right in rejecting Abdiel's wisdom. It would seem, perhaps, that Satan is indeed free, even though it's a poor excuse for freedom. And he would be right in thinking this if he ignored Abdiel's main point in that passage. You will remember that Satan before expressed that I myself am hell. In other words, he does not need chains to be captive. Hell is wherever he is. His desire, you'll remember, was to make a heaven of hell. But he cannot do that. All he can do is make a hell of heaven. In fact, he makes a hell of wherever he goes because he himself is hell. As Abdiel explained it to him, Thyself not free, but to thyself enthralled. Satan is kept captive. Satan always has chains. He is enslaved to himself. So, so far we've seen how the satanic impulse, the desire to be God, is birthed from pride, but often doesn't appear to be. How through it, an individual can believe that they're capable of making a heaven of hell but that the bargain means accepting horrors and torment and despair as the trade. And yet we've also seen how self-deception runs riot through the old lie. We lie to ourselves, ignoring moments of clarity and still preferring to live in pain, to live a hellish existence, as long as we are so-called free. But of course, the satanic impulse is itself a prison. That misplaced obsession with freedom ends up, in the end, enslaving us. What does this mean, to be enslaved to oneself? Well, you'll have to tune in next time to find out more, and I hope you do, as we're going to finally pivot away from Satan, at least for a little while, 
in order to hear about a medieval sin that may very well be the 21st century's sin of choice, acedia. That's next time on Chiron, conversations about the past to help us make sense of the present. Music